This is a podcast from Seven Vineyard. My name is Rebecca, uh, and it's a real pleasure to be invited back to speak here at Seven uh, in your new summer series, Encounters with God, Stories from the Old Testament. Uh, We'll be looking at how various people experience God in their time and their context and asking what we can learn from them for our lives today. And we'll be trying to get a better understanding of the big story that they are part of and how they all ultimately pointed to Jesus. So alongside this talk series, we're making available some options for listening and reading your way through the Old Testament. Uh, And Byrne has created three different options, three levels. Uh, If you weren't here last week, I think Dan went through them thoroughly. But level one's just kind of tracking with the same characters that we're speaking about on Sundays. Level two is dipping into that broader range of stories that will help give you that overview of the big story of the Old Testament. And level three, for those real keeners of you, those Bible geeks, because like shout out to them, Uh, love them. Uh, If you're up for that, then uh, it might sound like a bit of a major undertaking, but you're going to get through the whole of the Old Testament in three months. Uh, Sounds awesome. Um, Yeah, go on, go on. Challenge yourself. Uh, So Dan started the series last week with the wonderful story of Ruth in the time of Judges. Uh, And the repeated phrase you hear through judges is, in the time when everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. And that story starts in despair and bitterness and ends in redemption. The loss that those two amazing women, Ruth and Naomi, face is no less painful But God is at work in the ordinary and everyday and redeems these two women from a life on the margins to being fully restored into a family, a land, and an inheritance. And this is even true for Ruth, who is an outsider, a foreigner, and an ancient enemy. Thankfully, it's as if we planned it. We didn't really. We just got to pick. There are some major similarities in the theme, in the story of the woman that I want to share with you today, Hannah. I've chosen Hannah because she is my hero. And actually, she doesn't really count as a hero in the Old Testament. Bear with me. So I'm sitting in Trinity. Uh, I've just graduated. Woohoo! It's on my mind from yesterday. Um, and with this amazing tutor who I really, really respect, uh, real Old Testament steeped, amazing man. And he says, so who are the heroes in the Old Testament? And his point is, as everyone shouts out, mostly men, <laughs> there aren't any. Nope. Moses? Mm, No. Noah? Shady. And then, with every fibre of my being, and I'm not a shouter, and I don't like to draw attention to myself, I jumped in, Hannah! (laughs) And instantly went, ooh. (laughs) And he looked at me, and he went, she doesn't count, she's a woman. (sighs) Ooh. So... Hang on, I really respect you, and now my whole mind is blown. What are you talking about? He's like, this is the point. This is the point. The heroes that we're supposed to look to to be heroes, they're not really heroes. And the women don't really count because they're women. 
or they're outsiders or they're foreigners. And in the ancient Near East, we are supposed to go, no, they aren't right. They don't count. And yet God in the Old Testament surprises us time and time and time again. Because it's these people, the ones who are flawed, the ones who do shady things, the women, the ones on the margin, the outsiders, this is who he uses. And it's amazing. This is why I love Hannah. So, we're only a little further on ahead in our timeline from Ruth, in the sort of grand sweep of the history of the Old Testament, uh, that we come to Hannah. And we're in the gap. We're in a really major gap between judges and kings. And like Ruth's story, this also starts with bitter tears. And before I read you the story, I just want to give you a little side note about Hebrew stories. Uh, It's quite different to Dickens or Bronte, the Bronte sisters, uh, who take about um, a page and a million details to tell you simply that it's cold outside. Hebrew narrative is short and tight, like all the best sermons should be. Apologies, mine isn't. I get too excited and carried away. Every word is worth 10 of our equivalent stories today. So if a detail is mentioned, it's easy for us to skim over because we've no idea where Shiloh is or which Ephraim we're talking about or standing, sitting, what difference does that make in the story? And the answer is a whole load of difference. And I'd really encourage you, if you're not familiar with one or two Samuel to really challenge yourself to do a close reading. In fact, any, any, any part of the Bible you come across, really read it closely and thickly. And we're going to kind of do that together today. Ask questions. Uh, find answers. Check your sources for the answers you find, though. Um, and really appreciate the richness of this amazing story at a major turning point in Israel's history. That said, it comes with a health warning. It throws up some problems, which to an ancient listener or reader just wouldn't have even raised an eyebrow or caused any discomfort. So whilst this is not a talk about infertility or child loss, having had some small experience of child loss myself, and knowing I won't be the only person here affected by that, I do want to honestly and sincerely, as best I can, address it. And if it does bring up anything for you, please do come and talk to me or any of the pastoral team after, and do come for prayer. So, I'm going to swap microphones now, because this is a bit weird, and I'm going to just pick up my Bible, because remember what these things are? (laughs) We always do it on phones, don't we? It's like going old school. Uh, And we're going to read the story of Hannah. Come over here. Is that weird? It's a bit weird. Sorry. Okay. So, there was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. 
Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina, to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. When Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the, the, house, the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went away and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So. So. It's an amazing story. And I just want us to look at a few details that would be easy to miss, but look at them closely together. There's so much wrong-headed thinking today about who God is, particularly in the Old Testament, because it's easy to miss. Always pay close attention to who is speaking and who is passing judgment. Hannah is my hero because she knew exactly who God was intimately. So we're going to look at verse 2. This is the first time we come across Hannah's name. And like most Hebrew names, it has a rich meaning that will tell us something about her. Think back to Genesis. The naming is really important. Her name can mean charming. Oh, 
Also, when you're learning Hebrew, there's never like one translation. There's always like a million words. You have to remember it's a real pain. So her name can mean charming, attractive, and grace. And probably she's named to show particularly how loved she is by Elkanah, despite what invariably in the ancient Near East is viewed as her own personal failing to bear a child. And her name is sharply followed by Peninas. What does Peninas mean? Fertile, prolific. How painful. How painful to hear Penina's name it must have been for Hannah day in and day out. And whilst polygamy is still accepted by the people at this time in Israel, the whole grand sweep of the Old Testament is supposed to show us and highlight to us just how detrimental this way of living is. It's a vehicle, isn't it? Throughout Genesis we see for favoritism, for jealousy, disruption of Yahweh's order. But Hannah's infertility isn't just a personal tragedy. Polygamy is tolerated because it's a necessary evil, because the whole economic fabric of Israel and its neighboring lands is based on children. Without them, without the firstborn son of the firstborn son who inherits the double portion, the whole social order and fabric of society collapses. That has international consequences beyond Israel's border. Elkanah should know better. He comes to worship yearly, but he's not really following the Lord's way. And that international element is reflected in who Elkanah comes to worship. The Lord Almighty at Shiloh, or the Lord of hosts, and this is the first time we hear this name of God. Again, we like, need to kind of think about that. This new name that we hear for the first time. And she's come, they've come to worship where the presence of God dwells with the Ark of the Covenant. And this Elohi Savayot, and I probably murdered the translation, this Yahweh of the armies, or the infinite resources of angels, stars, and men, sons at his command to protect them and the land at a time that is persistent attack from the Philistines. Remember my waves last time. There's always another wave of attack coming. Hannah's hope lies in the one whose voice the whole host of heavens and earth must obey. And then we come to the bit that is painful. I'll read verses four to six again. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed Hannah's womb. Her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. In the context of the ancient Near East in Israel and any neighboring territory or religion, it would have been unthinkable that anything the sun, the rain, the harvest was not in the purview of Yahweh or any other god, if you're from a neighboring country, gods. Particularly the hidden emptiness or fullness of a womb. It would be reasonable then to question or to judge why Hannah was not blessed. 
And I feel it's important to notice who says her womb has been closed by Yahweh. The narrator says her womb has been closed by Yahweh, but Elkanah loves her anyway. Her tormentor and rival Penina accuses her womb of being closed by Yahweh, probably daily. But Yahweh speaks no word as to why this is Hannah's circumstance. In fact, I think we're meant to notice that at this time, Yahweh's word is scarce in the land and amongst the people. And my reflection on all of this, I have no easy answers, I'm afraid, is most of the Old Testament is trying to work out the answer through story as to the reason and meaning of suffering, both personal through people like Job and collective for the nation of Israel. She sometimes, I sense our own life stories, take on that task where there aren't simple or easy answers, and I certainly don't want to reduce her childlessness to a narrative hook. Is God judging or punishing her? No. Is she overlooked? Yes. (laughs) By the Lord? No. The surprising thing about Hannah's story is just how much we hear her voice. Remember I said brevity is the key to Hebrew narrative. Actually, I love Hannah's story because we really hear her. We really see her. And it's her and who she calls to that I want to focus on today. Having said that, we'll look at Penina. So verse 7, this went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. And this word that we have for rival, um, it's interesting. I mean, the Old Testament is dotted through these family rivalries, right? Sarah and Hagar, Rachel and Leah. But this word for rival, it's an unusual one in the Hebrew. It's more often used as rivalry between people groups and nations. And I think, again, it's this nod to this bigger story that we are on the cusp of with Hannah. And it's this bigger story that the Lord of hosts, these heavenly cosmic armies, is about to step into as well. And then we come to Elkanah's words of comfort that I feel fall very short. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? He means well. But his actions in bringing a second wife into the home have added to Hannah's torment daily. His earlier giving her of a double portion aims to show that he provides for her as if she was a mother. Is his love not... Is his love for her not worth more than ten sons? Really, Elkanah, is your love of her not worth more than ten sons? Might be, I feel, is the better question. And then we see Hannah's despair. Year after long year before we even hear her voice. But then we have this turning point in Hannah's story. In verse 9. And it's easy to just dismiss. Once they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. It's an odd thing. 
Hannah stands up. Well, if she's going to go somewhere or she's finished eating or drinking, of course she's going to stand up. I mean, do we, you know, talk about all the other little details that happen? Like, no. So what does that mean? It means this is the turning point of her story. It means she's no longer given over to her despair, but resolves to take it to the Lord of hosts, the one in charge of these big cosmic armies who she, in this moment, totally believes will at least hear the lowliest steps of her despair of the lowliest of women. God hears. We get to listen into this silent vow from her cry of her heart. But actually, the rest of her prayer is strictly between Yahweh and her. We never get to hear what that is. I think that's quite sacred and quite special. Her prayer is so fervent and so intimate that she probably hasn't even noticed that Eli is sitting there. And she draws his rebuke for being drunk. And maybe when lots of families come up to feast at Shiloh, This is like quite common for Eli to have to deal with some drunken behavior. And maybe a talk for another day is to think about Eli and what he should be focusing on later in the story. But I'm also really reminded of another time in the future when a powerful move of the Holy Spirit is mistaken for drunkenness, particularly as we come up to this time of Pentecost. And then finally, in verse 15, it's taken 15 long verses, we hear Hannah's voice, and it's passionate, it's indignant, it's vulnerable, and yet strong. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. In fact, deeply troubled is better translated obstinate, stubborn of spirit. I like that. I am a woman stubborn of spirit. Gives it another twist, doesn't it? Her cry is not to be counted as a worthless woman. She's been judged, we find, harshly and wrongly by her husband, her rival, and now this priest. And she has laid her petition in the hands of God and finally has been heard by Yahweh. And Eli, despite all his later spiritual blindness and deafness, he sees and hears Hannah. He may not hear her vow or her prayer, but I do think he has heard her heart. Perhaps simply responding to the passion of her trust in God's grace, he simply announces a blessing on her. What does God do? God remembers. In the fullness of time, God fulfills her request, and Hannah is not the first childless woman to be blessed with a child on whom the whole story of Israel hinges. And she's not the last. And I can't help but look forward to Elizabeth and John the Baptist uh, paving the way for the Messiah to come. And in the same way, Samuel will do just that with David, eventually, the hiccup of Saul on the way.
And then there's the song, which we haven't got to because actually I kind of want to dwell here in this place. But Hannah bursts through this amazing, powerful, revolutionary song, which is really reflected in Mary's song, The Magnificat, in the New Testament. Hannah sings both as the mother of Samuel, who's been restored through dramatic reversal, but also mother of Israel. Thanks is given as much for Samuel as it is for God's anointed one, David, to come. And of course, with our hindsight, Jesus. And we see this refrain throughout the whole Bible, when God remembers, not in a fixing of forgetfulness, but when God acts and moves to the miraculous inbreaking of his kingdom, it's always personal blessing and blessing for the nation and nations. There is one thing that strikes me and challenges me most about this beautiful, passionate story. And that's Hannah's peace. She has taken the deepest cry of her heart to the Lord. She's vulnerable with God in a way she can't be with anyone else, maybe even with herself. She fully trusts in a God alone that will at least hear her. In fact, she's given up even wanting a child for herself, dedicating this longed-for son as a Nazarite, one who doesn't drink or cut their hair, as an unusual act of service for the Lord, and dedicating him for the rest of his life means he won't inherit and he won't be able to provide for her in her old age. Usually the driving factor of needing a son. Remember this big economic thing that we're part of. This isn't a bargain she strikes with God for herself. It's not even a bargain. It's an act of sheer surrender. It really is your will be done. If she receives this gift of God's grace... She vows to give back to God the gift she receives. Hannah, like Samson's unnamed mother, makes this dedication on her son's behalf, one that Samson didn't fulfill, but by the grace of God, this yet non-existent son may. But what happens to Hannah? As she has poured out her heart to the Lord, Hannah receives almost instant peace and joy. Nothing in her circumstances have changed. And I find this really inspiring. Her burden, her despair, her desire, her hope are all laid in the right place in the presence of God, the one who hears her. Her prayer alone in the presence of God brings her peace. Eli's blessing is almost an aside. This Lord of hosts, Yahweh of the armies, Yahweh of infinite resources, this cosmic God who we may be more familiar with wrongly as an angry smiter of armies in the Old Testament, listens and brings peace to this marginalized, unheard, troubled woman. And this should challenge and disrupt our often wrongheadedness of who God is, particularly when we read the Old Testament today. It should also draw us nearer to this Lord of hosts who sees and hears our hearts cry as much today as he did Hannah's and wants to be so close and intimate with us that he hears the cry we can't even speak ourselves. Do I, do you 
run to his presence in those times? The Hannah that walks into his presence is not the Hannah that walks out of his presence. Hannah could only enter the Lord's presence once a year at Shiloh. What do we get to do? Because of Jesus, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be constantly renewed in his presence. And I genuinely want that to be that transformed by him. Not by someone else's blessing or acceptance of me or a change in my circumstances. I just want to be that transformed by his presence. So how do we do that? Well, we might need to stand up, like Hannah, to act, to decide to take it to the Lord in prayer. And if you've got any burden or heart's cry, and if it's yours or even if you're sharing that burden on behalf of someone else, then maybe that's what we could do together today in response to Hannah's story. So as weird as it is, shall we stand? Shall we take... But when you stand, don't just stand. (laughs) Stand up. This is your time to give that to the Lord, to act. A turning point, a hinge. It's much more than just a thing. So if you want, stand up in the fullness of what that is. And we will pray. Before we, um, as we were praying before the service, I really had a sense of um, not wanting anyone to leave today. Not that you're here, you're trapped here. I just, uh, don't go. His presence is here and it's with us day in, day out, we know that. But use this time, use this time to take it to him, whatever it is. And you can come to the front to pray or we can just let people know, let the Holy Spirit come do what the Holy Spirit does.